Well, Doug, thank you for that kind introduction, brother. Um, yeah, like Doug said, uh, we became friends in 2005 when we were in seminary. Uh, Doug and Sherry, especially Sherry, was so kind to us. Doug warmed up to us over time. And um, we really have been thankful for their friendship over these years. We moved away, did ministry in Kansas City and then Washington, D.C., uh, but one of the joys of coming back to this area was knowing that we would be near them again, and so it's been good to be reunited with them. I'm also thankful for your pastor, Jim. Uh, one of the things that I was praying for coming back to this area was other like-minded pastors, other pastors that love God's Word, that meant to be leading churches to uh, live by and preach God's Word, and found that in Jim. Uh, he's become a good friend as we've had coffee together, enjoyed pastors' meetings together, talked about ministry together, uh, so thankful to have him uh, as a friend here as well. Also met uh, several of your elders here, went to seminary some with Jeremy, and Jared and I have met several times for lunch, and so um, thankful for, for all the elders for, for having us, for having our family here uh, to be able to share this morning with you in this service. And so my wife and our four kids, uh, we come to you uh, happy to be worshiping the Lord with you as we now gather around God's Word. Send greetings from Christ Covenant Church in Baton Rouge, right there on Lee Drive. Uh, and as often as I hear about people that live down in this part of the world, in, in, in y'all's area, I recommend people to, to this church knowing uh, the, the good gospel work that y'all are doing and would love to have you at Christ Covenant anytime you're there in Baton Rouge. I want to begin this morning by sharing a story with you that I think helps us get at an understanding of our passage today. It was a man named Robert Barker who published a Bible in 1631. This Bible became famous, some would say it become infamous, because there was a misprint in the Bible. Uh, the passage that had the misprint was Exodus 20, verse 14. And there was one important word that was omitted. The word that was omitted uh, caused this Bible to become very famous. Some people call this Bible the wicked Bible or the sinner's Bible. Others refer to it as the adulterer's Bible because it read, thou shall commit adultery. And of course, that was a huge problem for those that read it. That was a huge problem for the publishers that put it out. So most of those Bibles were destroyed. They were uh, trying to get rid of as many of those Bibles as they could. There are still some of those Bibles around today in uh, museums in Houston, museums in London, museums in New York. If you're there, you can find that Bible and read that. But the one word that was omitted, or the one word that was changed in that passage, changed the meaning significantly. Some people thought it changed the meaning of the entire Bible significantly, and so they threw that out. Church, this morning I want us to think about the idea that our words are important. Many of you have heard words uh, that have stuck with you your entire life that have had a lasting impact on you. Words like, I love you, or will you marry me? or I'm pregnant. But unfortunately, there are also words that we hear that have a negative impact on us as well. And so, I want us to think this morning about our words because we use words every day. I wonder, congregation, as we begin the sermon this morning, how have your words gone this week? If we were to play your words back over the speaker right now for everyone to hear, would there be any words that you would want to take back? Even maybe some words that you've shared this morning, any words that you would want to take back? Well, this morning, if you're someone who speaks to others, which I trust that all of you are, 
that I think this sermon this morning should be of some help to you. This morning, I want us to think about the idea of how genuine faith speaks well, or the idea of how those that have genuine faith are meant to use their words well. And of course, this morning, our passage is coming from the book of James. Today, we're in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So I want us to read that together one more time as we begin looking at this passage. James 3, 1 through 12. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and setting on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would illuminate your word for us in such a way this morning that we would love you more that we would love our neighbors more. We pray that you would help us understand the power of our words and we would use them for good. We pray these things for our good, for the good of those around us, and for your eternal glory. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit. Amen. Well, this passage in James chapter 3 is the longest teaching in the New Testament on the tongue. It's the longest teaching in the New Testament about the words that we're using, and certainly all throughout the Bible, there's a lot of language about our words. The argument that I want to make this morning is that Christians should guard their tongues and use them in the service of the Lord. Christians should guard their tongues and use them in the service of the Lord. James has already opened up the topic of talking about our words in chapter 1. If you want to turn back there with me, look at verse 19. James says, be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. And then our passage for today is really an expansion of what James says in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the book of James is all about how our lives should match our profession of being a Christian. 
I think we all know that there are people that claim to be Christians, yet their lives don't match their profession. I wonder this morning as we're beginning to think about this passage uh, and you hear what James is talking about, how are you thinking about your own life? If you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, would you say that your life matches that profession? Would other people that know you say that your life matches that profession? Well, one of the things that James talks about throughout this letter is how our speech should match up to our profession as well. Uh, There are other good deeds that James talks about, and uh, this book is helpful in learning what it means to be a true Christian. But one of the reasons I picked this passage this morning is because the idea of speech is often overlooked. The idea of how we control our tongues is often overlooked. But the idea of words is a big deal in the Bible, isn't it? We think about even from the beginning, God created the world by speaking. And then he created us in his image. And he made us relational creatures. We speak to one another. We talk to one another every day. And God created his special people by calling out Abram. And he gave Abram this special promise that the people of God would follow him. And Abraham believed God's word. And the Jews became God's people following the promised word of God. We have that famous passage in Ezekiel 37 where there's the valley of dry bones. And then they come back to life. And how does that happen? That happens by uh, the prophet Ezekiel speaking to them, prophesying words to them, and that had power to bring about new life. And of course, supremely, we see that the word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. And now as Christians, those that have been born again and given genuine faith, we're now meant to share that same good news with our words. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by speaking the message about Christ. The word is certainly central in our churches today. Uh, Many churches are are marked by certain pillars that, that indicate their health. And one of the main ways that a church knows it's healthy is by its preaching ministry. How does it preach the word of God? What does it do with God's word? What does God say? And how does that preaching affect the congregation? Our preaching is all about words. So then, church, we shouldn't be surprised to find a lot of teaching in Scripture about how we speak. Now, this is exactly what James is cluing in on here in chapter 3. And so I have four points that I want to make from this text, if you're interested in following along, taking notes. The first point that I want us to think about from the passage this morning is that not many of you should teach because you will be judged more severely. Not many of you should teach, using your words to teach, because you will be judged more severely. We see that there in verse 1, and the first part of verse 2, look back with me at verse 1. The first thing that James teaches us here is a warning about being careful for those that teach, because they will be judged more strictly. Well, during the first century, being a disciple of a rabbi meant that you had a teaching ministry. It meant that you would go about uh, talking about uh, your ministry and that what you would do oftentimes is it was a very strict process. There was a lot of respect and honor with being a disciple of a rabbi and you would have to memorize large portions of the Torah. You would uh, have to memorize the rabbi's commentary on the Bible. And then, of course, your life would have to match what you're teaching as well. 
What James is getting at in this particular passage is that many people were circumventing that. They were going around that process and they were becoming self-appointed teachers. They were going about teaching people about God's word and leading them astray in the name of God. And so these specific verses here in one and two are talking about church leaders, those that claim to have a certain authority in the church, those that claim to be rightly interpreting the Bible. And so there's a weight in what they have to say. And so it's clear here, the first couple of verses in James 3, that there's more expected from church leaders, that God's going to hold them accountable for what they say. Jesus talks about this, Paul talks about this. And so church, this morning, one of the first points of application that I want to make to you all as a congregation is to think about those here that have a teaching and preaching ministry in your church. They're going to be judged more harshly by God, and so I want to encourage you to pray for them. Pray for them in their study, pray for them in their teaching, pray for them in their preaching, pray for them that they would be true to what God's word says and that God would look kindly upon them as they think about the preaching ministry that the Lord has given them. The second thing we see here in verse two is that everyone stumbles or everyone sins in many ways, including with their words. And so James's logic is clear here. Teachers are using their words all of the time. Teachers are going to be judged more harshly. People mess up with their words regularly. So teachers, be careful what you say. But James isn't suggesting that no one should teach God's word. That's not what he's getting at. He's he's not saying that we shouldn't do this. There shouldn't be any teachers of God's word. Certainly teaching is a much needed role in the church. God has given pastors, he's set apart elders for the work of preaching to help people understand God's word and follow him more clearly. So that's not what James is getting at. And also while this passage is dealing primarily with those that have the main teaching ministry in the church, it's also talking to all Christians. The Bible is clear that all Christians have been given a teaching ministry. The Great Commission says that all of us should be making disciples and teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. And so all of us have a responsibility in thinking about this passage. All of us that are saying anything about Jesus and helping people understand the Bible need to hear the weight of what James is saying here and how important our words are. So friends, think carefully about your words. Think carefully about the words that you're teaching others about Christ. Take seriously what James is saying here in these first couple of verses of chapter three. Well, the rest of this passage teaches us that our words can either be used for good or they can be used for evil. So the second point that I want us to think about this morning is to recognize that your tongue can be a powerful influence for good. That's the first thing that we see here. Look back at the end of verse two. It says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. For if we put bits in the mouths of horses, so they also obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look also at ships, they're so large and driven by strong winds, but they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So this passage teaches us that While the tongue is small, it has great power and can be used for good. It says that the tongue is similar to a bit for horses or for a rudder on a ship. 
It has the capacity to guide. It has the capacity to direct. It has the capacity to make people obey. And so the tongue has legitimate power. We see there at the end of verse four that it guides large ships wherever the pilot is directing. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can think about this passage and how our tongues can be used for good and different roles in our lives. Thinking about the informal teaching that mothers do in the home, the incredible and important job that moms have that are raising young children, by the words that you speak to them and commending the gospel and commending how Christians ought to live, those are powerful words that are meant for good in the lives of your children. People that work in education or have certain uh, opportunities in instruction. All of these formal ways that you might be using as a teacher, a preacher, an educator, uh, someone that that is a boss in a certain uh, area, as you're guiding and directing people, your words have incredible impact on them. Thinking about the positive impact of our words, uh, we read things all throughout the Bible that help us see how important this is. The book of Proverbs chapter 10 says the mouth is a righteous fountain. Chapter 15 verse 1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath. Chapter 16 verse 24 says gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing the bones. Christian, don't you want those type of things to be said about you? That when you speak that your words are gracious. That, that when people think about you and the way that you speak to them, that it's sweet to their soul, that your words are healing to their bones. All of us have incredible opportunities to use our words for good. We can also use our words for good in our workplaces. As we use honest words and encouraging words and patient words with our coworkers, it has an incredible impact for good. Thinking recently about a meeting that I was having with another pastor at our church, and we were talking about the roles and responsibilities that we were having that particular week. And before I got up to leave, I was heading out of the office and he stopped me and he said, Sean, I just want to let you know how thankful I am that you're here, how thankful I am for God's work and the ministry that God is doing through you here at Christ Covenant. You can imagine the encouragement that that did to my soul, the good that it did to me in thinking about the appreciation that the other pastors had for me there at the church. My friends, I want to encourage you this morning to think about the good that your words can also do in your relationships, especially in your marriages. I want us to think about two things uh, that our words can help us with in our marriage, and certainly there are a lot of other good things that you can say, but two ways that I want you to think about using good words in your marriages. The first is unconditional forgiveness, and the second is practicing affirmation. Unconditional forgiveness is something that's difficult. It's something that's difficult for us over the years because we often want the other person to know that they need to learn their lesson for what they've done wrong. We wanna make sure that they understand just how bad uh, what they did sort of sinks in and they get that before we're willing to forgive them. But uh, that's not the type of love that we see in the Bible. That's, That's not the way that we see that God loves us. The way that we see that God loves us is unconditional. And so Christian spouse that's here today, I wanna encourage you to use your words in a good way as it relates to forgiveness. Even when you're not quite feeling ready to forgive, to ask God for help and to extend those good words to your spouse to lean over and tell them, I forgive you. 
Allow that to be healing balm in the relationship and restore you in situations where you feel that tension and you know it's not quite yet resolved and maybe you still wanna have a few more words, but by God's grace, you can use your words well, extending forgiveness to them. The other thing that you can do is practice affirmation in your home regularly with your spouse and with your children, regularly over and over again. And I realize it's, it's hard to continue to be intentional and it's easy to criticize, especially for me. And so this passage has challenged me to use my words well. So one of the things I want you to think about in the way that you can apply this passage well is just telling your spouse how thankful that you are for them as God's gift to you. Instead of regularly criticizing them for things and ways that you want them to do better, and you know, we often think that if they just got this and this and this right, then the marriage would be fine. But friends, we know that we can't change our spouses. We know that the only ones that we can change is ourselves. And part of this starts with us understanding that God's been kind and giving us a spouse and regularly telling them that. Christian, use your words for good in your relationships. I wanna encourage all of us to think about ways in our works, in our homes, with our children, with our spouses, ways that we can use our words for good this week. One of the more encouraging things in this passage to me was surprising right there in verse two. It tells us that if we can hold our words in check, that we can become perfect. So there's probably a lot of suspicion when you read that. There was a lot of suspicion when I read that. What exactly is James getting at? Well, I don't think that he's saying that all of us can be perfect, but I think he's just pressing this idea of the power of words, the power of the tongue. And so how does the power of the tongue apply to us being perfect? Well, I think what James is doing here, he's showing us that our speech comes from the inner man. There's something deeper that's going on in our hearts and minds that influences what we say. And in the same way that a small rudder steers a boat or a small bit steers a large horse, our tongue has the power to steer our entire body. In Grant Osborne's commentary on James, he says that learning godly ways of speaking will help us learn godliness in other ways. And so here's the point. The issue of speech shouldn't be put off while we work on other areas in our lives. And so friend, if you're wanting to grow in purity, or if you're wanting to grow in gentleness, if you're wanting to grow in patience, you might want to start with your speech and thinking about how you talk. The secret strategy that James is telling us here is that the tongue can control the entire body and lead to perfection in other ways. And so we need to understand the power of the tongue, thinking about how it can help us grow in godliness in every other way in our lives. Well, I thought this was particularly insightful because for me, I often go to the symptom. I often begin to work on that. And I think what James is telling us here, that the tongue is really getting at the heart of who we are. And if we can control that, then we can see growth and progress in other areas of our lives. So number one, we see that we need to be careful when we teach God's word because we're gonna be judged more harshly for it. Number two, we see that our words can be used for amazing good. But number three, this passage teaches us that we need to recognize that our tongue can be a powerful influence for evil. We pick up there the second half of verse five and it says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
This is not good imagery. James is shifting his language here. There's been good imagery in the previous verses. Now here, the second part of five, he shifts his language. We all know that a large forest fire can be started with just one spark. In a matter of moments, it can have an entire forest set on fire. This is exactly what James is using here, this powerful word picture to teach us that our words are powerful and can do a lot of harm. Just one phrase, just one word can damage someone greatly. Proverbs sixteen twenty seven says, a worthless man digs up evil. His speech is a scorching fire. Proverbs 26, 2 says, a charcoal for embers and wood for fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. One commentator said, show me a man or woman who stirs up strife, who is a gossip, who criticizes everything due to a proud and critical heart, and I will show you someone who has hurt many people along their path, starting in their own home. Well, all of us have probably been hurt or wounded by hurtful words in the past. Maybe some of you right now still hear those words that have hurt you, even as you sit here right now during this time. That's because our words are so powerful and can be meant to harm. There's a downward progression here in verse 6. Look at it. It says the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness stains the whole body. It sets on fire the entire course of life. And then it is set on fire by hell. Richard Bachman says that James's downward progression here in verse 6 ends with the punishment for those who practice wicked speech. The unrepentant offenders will end up in hell. So James isn't referring so much to the origin of the speech. He's speaking to the principle that the crime fits the punishment. The tongue that starts the fire will end up being punished by the fire. Verse 7 continues, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's amazing that humans can train all kinds of animals. In fact, some dogs obey better than some children. I'm not speaking about your children, of course, because I don't know them. But the idea is that we can tame all kinds of animals. Our family this past summer, we were in Orlando at SeaWorld. Some of you have been there and seen dolphins and orca whales that have been tamed and they're trained well by their trainer. And you see this amazing idea, this phenomenon of such large animals that have been tamed. But then James says, no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And so church, this passage is sending us a blaring warning about the potential danger of our words. Are you listening to these words? Romans 3, 13, and 14 continues to speak of our depravity as it relates to our speech. It says, our tongues are an open grave. People deceive with their tongues. There's a viper's venom under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And so it's often not a good picture that the Bible is painting about the potential danger that we can do with our tongues. Proverbs goes on to say it's highly destructive in our speech. It stirs up anger. The mouth of a fool gushes folly, and a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. 
So the Bible teaches that there is a lot of rotten fruit of the untamed tongue. It includes gossip and belittling and cursing and bragging and manipulating, false teaching, exaggerating, complaining, flattering, lying, and I could go on and on. But I wonder, are you guilty of any of these? Do you need to repent of any of these? I know that I do. In America, we cherish freedom of speech. But with freedom comes great responsibility. And Christians in any form of society need to learn what's helpful to say and what's helpful not to say. Many people today suffer from the tendency to pass on rumors without checking their accuracy, especially in the internet age. The internet has lots of misinformation and half-truths and personal opinions and mixed in with some facts. But Christians, we need to be careful what kinds of things we say on the internet, what our words are putting forth online. We know that there's often controversies and arguments happening online, and those can be fruitful. But something I want you to think about from this teaching in James this morning, are the words that you put on the internet producing more light or more heat? I want you to think about as you post things or tweet things or put things out there, are my words producing more light or more heat, especially on tentious subjects? Our passage for today, James is teaching us how dangerous our words can be. Remember, it can set a fire, it can be unrighteous, it can stain the body, it can have you headed for hell. It cannot be tamed, it's a restless evil, it's full of deadly poison. And so it's hard to overemphasize the importance of us understanding and applying what James is saying here. But in order for us to fully understand this, there's one more point, there's one final thing here in the last few verses that we have to understand, our fourth and final point this morning is that your words are a symptom of your heart. The words that you speak are a symptom of your heart. In verses 9 through 12, James uses illustrations of water and trees to remind us that in the same way it's not possible for freshwater source to produce salt water or a grapevine to produce olives, Christians shouldn't both use their mouth or their words to praise God and curse others. This analogy is showing us how the true source of something is going to produce its own product. This illustration helps get the point across. There's a story of someone that wanted a healthy apple tree in their backyard, and so they plant this apple tree, but along the way that this tree was coming up, the root became rotten. And so when the apples came out and were coming onto the tree, all of the apples that were on the tree were rotten as well. Well, the guy can't just go to the store and buy good apples and go and staple them on the tree and then have a healthy tree. If the tree is rotten at its core, all of the fruit is going to be rotten the whole time. Well, that's exactly what James is saying in this passage. He's saying our speech is a byproduct of our hearts. Jesus says it another way. He says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we don't address the heart issue, we just address our outward speech, that's nothing more than fruit stapling. We actually need to get to the heart of the issue. 
And so this passage teaches us that on our own, we're in a helpless predicament. We can't tame the tongue. And so what do we do? When we look at our own evil words, we realize it's an indicator of our heart and our true spiritual condition. James's main concern here comes in verse 9. James is blown away that someone can both bless the Lord and curse people with the same mouth. This inconsistency should be unthinkable to Christians. And the tone that James uses in this passage is some of the strongest in the New Testament. It's like a father scolding his children. At the end of verse 10, when he says, it ought not be so, this is some of the strongest Greek in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used here in this way. Many commentators say that James is basically yelling frantically, it can't be so. A Christian cannot both praise God and speak ill of someone else that is made in God's image. Spoken with all of the force of protesting condemnation, James condemns this type of contradictory action. It makes no moral sense. It makes no logical sense. It simply can't be. To James, it's unthinkable that a Christian could praise God and then use cutting marks against someone else that's made in God's image. The Bible teaches that all people are made in the image of God with equal dignity and worth. And there's a special value for those that are in the church for whom Christ died. Who are we to speak ill of someone for whom Christ died? So let us all heed James's word today and watch our language. We can't stand here this morning and praise God and sing God with our mouths and then later insult people and use that same mouth to speak ill of someone. This is a serious issue that James is getting at here. In fact, it's so serious, James suggests the person that acts like this should seriously question whether or not they are a Christian, whether or not they actually have genuine faith. To the person that says, oh, I know that I talk too much and just laughs it off, James is not amused. He insists be quick to listen and slow to speak. To the person that says, I always speak my mind no matter what, James is not impressed. He commands be disciplined in your speaking. To the person that says, I know that I gossip too much, but I can't help it. James still requires control your tongue. To the person that is in the habit of speaking with insults and ridicule and sarcasm, James demands change your speech habits. James expects that discipline is happening in the life of a Christian as it relates to their speech. Genuine faith speaks well. And any Christian can ask for God's grace to do this. And James 1.5, he says, ask for wisdom and I'll give it abundantly if you need help in this area. But James is teaching that there's no justification for using our speech to insult other people made in God's image. He simply calls us to repentance. James is teaching us that we have to address this problem at a deeper level. Jesus taught us that our tongue problem is actually a heart problem, and it needs to be changed. So friends, we don't need a spiritual tongue doctor, but we need a spiritual cardiologist. And praise God, we have one. While we can't tame our tongues ourselves, God can. All of us are guilty of sinning with our words. And if we're honest, James's words here can live us feeling condemned. 
But I want us to recognize this morning in light of our sin that we can be encouraged by God's provision for all of the imperfect words that we've spoken and all of the imperfect words that we've believed there's good news in the Bible. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, thankful that you've made the effort to be here today. And I want you to hear the good word of the gospel that's found in the Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, God speaks in creation. And then Satan speaks in the fall. But then God speaks again in redemption. And he has the last word. God has revealed a word of gospel promise. All of us have been burned by promises and it it hurts us, it's stained us. And we've hurt other people with our broken promises. But friend, God never breaks his promises. Therefore, no matter how your words have affected other people or how you've been affected by other people's words, I want to encourage you to hear God's voice above all other voices and find hope in healing. Because in the beginning, right after the fall, we read in Genesis 3.15 that God made a promise. He told us that he was going to send a baby, a child, the seed of a woman. And that child would crush the head of the serpent and the enemies of God, namely sin, death, the devil, hell, and the grave. And God kept his promise by sending a son, a son born of a woman under the law to redeem those who had broken the law. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. He spoke all of the perfect words that we fall short of and he died in our place for our sinful words and our sinful actions. And he was raised from the dead. The death that results from our sinful words has been overcome by the word made flesh. God has revealed his word of gospel wisdom and all of us should take hold of it today. Friend, if you're here today and you know that God is speaking to you and you want to know more about him and follow him and follow his words, please talk with me after the service today. Talk with Pastor Jim. Talk with a Christian friend that you may have come with. And Christian that's here today, I want to close by encouraging you to rest in the finished work of Jesus in your place. The word of God is the ultimate solution to your word problem. And God always has the final word. James 1.18 makes clear that sinners are saved by the word of truth. So death does not have the final word for God's people. Because on the cross, Jesus defeated death for all of us, and he took God's wrath in our place, using his words to say, it is finished. And when Jesus returns, he will consummate his kingdom with final words. And we read those words in Revelation 21, where he promises those that have faith in Christ will be sons and daughters of the King of God for all eternity and dwell with him forever. And those that believe that and now know that now have the privilege and responsibility to share that word with a lost and hopeless world. So those of us who are here who are in Christ have the power of God in us and we can tame the tongue and we can now use our tongues for good. So Christian, I want to encourage you this summer to think about your words to think about how genuine faith speaks well. I want to encourage you to ask God to give you the power to tame the tongue. Ask God to give you the power to use your words for good. And as you see God changing you and you're speaking, see all the other good fruit and other ways that God is growing you in grace and other areas of your life. Let's pray together. Before I pray, I just want to Have a moment of silence to ask you to reflect on God's word and what he said to you this morning.
Father, we thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you that your word can be trusted in this life and the next. We thank you for these reassuring words this morning from James chapter 3. We ask the Holy Spirit would help us to believe these words this week. Help us to use our words to encourage others. We pray that you would help us to use our words for good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit. Amen.